Hello and welcome to this, the first in a series of special Faber podcasts to mark the centenary of the birth of England's most significant 20th century composer, Benjamin Britten. Britten's association with Faber is a long one, dating back to the creation of Faber Music in 1964, one of whose express aims was to publish the composer's music. Since then, many books about the man and his music have appeared under the Faber imprint, including the multi-volume Selected Letters, the 1992 biography by Humphrey Carpenter, which remains controversial, and the books by John Bridcut, the writer and filmmaker who has contributed to these programmes. In these podcasts, I'll be speaking to people who knew Britain, who've written about him, or been captivated and inspired by his music across several generations. The theme of this first programme is First Encounters, and I've been lucky enough to interview three people who met and worked with the composer at different stages of his and their careers. This summer I travelled to the Suffolk-Essex border to meet the writer Ronald Blythe, who's best known for his book on rural Suffolk life, Aikenfield. In the mid to late 50s, Ronald worked for the Aldborough Festival, which Britain set up in 1948, with his partner Peter Piers and Imogen Holst, the musician daughter of the composer Gustav Holst. Sitting in Ronald's cottage, I asked him if he'd been in awe of Britain's reputation before he met him. I just knew that, like me, he came from Suffolk. Even when I was introduced to him as his young writer, he didn't seem to me overwhelmingly grand or anything like, like that. I, um, he's, Imogen Holst was the person who, who seemed, the miracle worker when I was concerned, to take me into that kind of world. And, and, and I adored her, and, and, and I wanted to please her all the time. People talked about Ben being difficult, which he was. Exacting was the word, exacting. He corrected you immediately if there's any time. There are a lot of young people doing all these chores for the festival, but I clearly didn't belong to that group at all. So was he, was he difficult to know for everyone, or was there an, an inner circle who, who did have sort of access to? Well, he had a following, and he was imperious in many ways, and exacting, and extraordinarily kind but could be um, furious. or uh, I hardly spoke to Peter Pierce, although he was often present. But I saw a lot of them and did a lot of work for them, one way or another, little jobs and things like that. And I can see, looking back, that they clearly didn't regard me as they did lots of the other youngsters around. I, I didn't mind what I did, really. I did all kinds of things which you did for a festival, even just setting the chairs out sort of thing, or going on errands and singing once in the St. Nicholas Cantata. There's nothing I didn't do, really. The thing which worried me was being taken over by them. I felt I was cheating to be doing any work there at all. And this friend of mine, James Turner, went to Cornwall, who was my guru at that time. He more or less told me they would ruin me. He'd have nothing to do with them sort of thing. But you got out in time. <laughs> it, 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 my work took over, yes. And was Imogen Holst a sort of counterbalance to Britain, a, a sort of equally strong...? Well, there were the three of them running the festival, but she was. She worked like 20 hours a day. She did all, all the orchestration of Britain. I remember sitting in her flat and seeing all, all the sheets of turn of the screw or something over the coconut matting. But she honoured artists and writers, she revered them. And she was their kind of, not slave, but, I mean, Ben couldn't have worked without her. 
she, she was astounding. She was selfless, but she was also brilliant. She was a very good composer. She seemed gentle and, uh, but it's, she could be hard as nails underneath. After the interview, I asked Ronald to read a short extract about Britain from his memoir, The Time by the Sea, which contains a recollection from Britain's sister that takes us right back to his earliest years. And as Ronald says, is one of those images that once heard is hard to forget. Benjamin Britain, Lower Stockton, from day one, might be said to have come out of the sea like one of those oceanic beings who blow horns in the cartouches of ancient maps. Unlike me, he was oceanic from the start. Tides accompany his pulse, whereas my pulse is out of tune with the regular beat of the shore, which I find wearying as well as stimulating. I've never seen Ben tired. He's either fully awake or sound asleep. His father's house stared hard at the sea in all weathers. It had a basement from which on Monday wash day steam would billow in soap clouds which added to the morning mist, his sister Beth told me. It's odd how disconnected bits of human information become free from one's unforgetfulness and gain importance. Thus the lower stopped dentist's house and the little boy on wash day and the composing like Mozart. John Bridget is a documentary filmmaker whose latest film, Britain's Endgame, will launch the Benjamin Britten centenary on BBC television this November. He's also the author of Britain's Children, which is the subject of another podcast in this series, and the invaluable Essential Britain, a companion to the composer's life and works. I asked John about his earliest encounter with Britain's music. I think the first time I came across his music was as a choir boy at school, singing as due in April, which is one of the movements of a ceremony of carols, which is sort of quite gentle. And um, I sing of a maiden that is makeless. It's striking. I, I can remember it to this day very well. And then I got involved in, I think, the the Britain Jubilati for, with, with um, a small ensemble at school. But it wasn't, it was a few years later that it really sort of started to strike home with me, I think. And that was the Simple Symphony, which I didn't play in at school at first. I heard it and, and thought this is very engaging. And then the Ballad of Little Musgrave and Lady Barnard, which is a fabulous piece. And I'd still reckon that that's one of my favourite Britain pieces, not least for the amazing piano part. And then I started seeing encountering the operas by seeing them on television i saw the first opera i saw i think was billy budd in the bbc broadcast black and white in the mid 60s sometime with peter glossop as billy budd i won't pretend that i grasped it at all in fact billy budd is a piece that's only really sort of got to me much more recently it's quite a difficult piece to get into straight away and then Actually, after I'd first encountered Britain by singing for him, I took part in a student performance at university of Curly River, his church parable, for the first church parable. And that was a fantastic experience. I think we did three performances. I believe it was the first student performance that ever been of the piece. And it got into my bloodstream completely. And in fact, 
so much so that I didn't really want to see it or hear it elsewhere. And that was a sort of a curse, if you like, that I only managed to get through this last summer when I saw it in in Orford and Suffolk for, um, the first time for 40 years. It had meant so much to me that, you know, when you when there's a piece that really catches you, you sort of don't want to go and see it or hear it again in case it spoils the memory. So by the time John Bridcott met Britton, when he was performing in Elgar's Dream of Gerontius, he regarded him as someone special. I certainly was aware at the tender age of 18 that he was very a very important figure and I was a real thrill to be singing with him. On the other hand, I, at that age, I was sufficiently blasé, I think, that I didn't really capture all the things that he said. And I wish now that I had sort of written down all the pearls of wisdom that dropped from his lips. Probably there weren't that many pearls of wisdom because he was dealing with us as a choir and I'm sure he was just telling us basic practical things that he wanted and it wasn't full of insights into his work or, or Elgar's work. I do remember the significance of feeling I'm being conducted by this amazing man. In fact, we did the same summer. We sang with Michael Tippett as well. So to be conducted by Britain's two premier composers within a month of each other was an amazing experience. With Britain, it was exhilarating because he was such a a fine conductor. Michael Tippett was not, I have to say. And and we, we nearly came to grief on the piece that we did with him. But with Britain, you felt so safe because his his conducting was crystal clear and you knew exactly what he wanted. He was very, very demanding, but so rewarding to sing for. The thing I'd also remember, and this shows that I was sort of into his mindset, was that I thought how strange it was that he was conducting Elgar. You know, I, I just thought this is chalk and cheese. And it's only very recently that I've come to the view, I don't think it's actually widely shared, but it's the view, my, my view is that they're very similar, Britain and Elgar, and although their musical language is quite different, as characters, they're very much the same breed, both very thin-skinned, both real craftsmen. I think Britain, although he was rude about Elgar for most of his life, I think he did admire his craft as an orchestrator. Elgar was different in that he was a lazy man, whereas Britain was far from lazy, incredibly hardworking, or puritanical in his work ethic. From the late 60s, the brothers David and Colin Matthews, both of whom went on to become distinguished composers in their own right, worked closely with the by then ailing Britain on the preparation of his scores. I asked Colin what his earliest memory of the music was. I'm not sure that I can remember the first encounter. I mean, the first thing I can remember vividly is the first performance of the War Requiem in 1962. And I was aware both in advance of, you know, of what people were saying about it. And I, and I have a vivid memory of, of listening to it the first time and being deeply impressed. And I think probably that was the time that, that Britain's music got through to me more than it had before. I think before then I was aware of it, but not didn't know it that well. I was still pretty young then. What, was that while you were a student? Or, or no, this would be while I was still at school. I mean, that would have been I would have been sixteen in nineteen sixty-two. So, um, and and music at that time was a fairly new obsession. I mean, I had I played the piano as a child, like anyone does, but not until I was about fourteen or fifteen did I really sort of discover what music was really about. And um, with with my brother David, we both immediately decided, well, the only thing worth doing is composing. So we started writing music straight away. 
So Britain came pretty early on in that, but he wasn't a, I wouldn't say he was a major influence or that I felt that I was more, I was more interested actually in Tippett at that time and the, the, the music Tippett was writing seemed to me to be more productive for me as a composer. At the start of this programme, Ronald Blythe recalled singing in Britain's cantata St Nicholas, an account of the original Santa Claus. Quite by chance, we come full circle with the memories of a composer now in her thirties, Dobrinka Tabakova, whose first encounter with Britain's music was at a children's concert in her native Bulgaria. And it must have been the young person's guide to the orchestra. I think that's probably the, the very first impression. And interestingly, the very first piece that I was I performed of Britain's, I was in the choir performing St Nicholas. And... Um, I think that's testament to his love of involving children and amateurs in music. And I, for, for me, this is a, a huge legacy in British music, just what he has done for the inspiration of young people and, and people that you might not necessarily think are in the musical profession. And that also, I think, is part of the individuality of his sound and of, of the music that he writes. I think he's very conscious of writing something that, that um, has an identity, an immediate identity, and um, can welcome a response from the performers or from the audience. And uh, I think he was, he was very conscious of that in, in the music that he was writing. And I loved performing St. Nicholas. I have such vivid memories of, of the reaction that I have to the, to the violin solo at the beginning and singing the words. It was just extremely uplifting. I feel very grateful that, that I've had that in my life. And later on, I, I heard the Les Illuminations, which is perhaps for me one of the highlights of musical repertoire, full stop. I think you just need to hear the phrase, just over a minute's worth of music, and you're completely won over. Dobrinka Tabakova. I hope you've enjoyed this first podcast from Faber to mark the Britain centenary. There are full details about the books and Britain published by Faber on the website at faber.co.uk. And further episodes in this series will be appearing throughout the autumn so I hope you'll want to hear them all. For the moment, thank you very much for listening, and goodbye.